Well, it's good to see y'all today. Y'all look pretty good. Sounded pretty good singing. Glad you're here. If you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor. Once you know you're invited to anything we have going on, just feel welcome to come tonight. Six o'clock, we have, you know, part of our impact campaign, time of prayer for impact. Talk about it more later. You'll see it more in the end of the service on the announcements, but y'all invited to come. We, we'd love, love to have you there. Uh, I, I'm at next month, start of September, be my 41st anniversary in ministry. And uh, I think about that this time of year a lot, about, you know, I can't believe I've been doing this for over four decades. You know, I still feel young. And I think of myself as being like 20-something, you know. And I was 19 when I started. And sometimes I still think the best stuff I ever did was back then because I just didn't know nothing. And I knew I didn't know nothing. Now I think I know something when I know nothing. And that really means nothing good happens. If you can figure that out, because I don't know what I just said. But, you know, it's just, but I think back. And, and, and I remember when I was a young preacher boy, because back then, in, 19, in the early 80s, 1980 and all, we, we were called preacher boys back then. And the old timers would come, you know, old timer to me was anybody over 30. And they would say, you know, why are you in the ministry, boy? Why, why are you doing this? You know, and I always gave the real churchy spiritual answer. But I knew what the real answer was, and it wasn't until a few years passed that I decided I'd just start giving the real answer because I didn't care anymore. And, and the reason I'm in ministry was to make a difference in people's lives. I just wanted to know that somewhere along the line, my life mattered, that I did something that mattered. But I wanted it to matter for God, and I wanted it to matter to help people come to Christ. And so I believe God called me to minister, because what I want to really do is make an impact in people's lives, because it matters to make an impact. And as a church, we, we want to make an impact. We're starting this journey that we're calling impact. You know, we moved out here, all right, three and a half years ago, it was part of a campaign called Reach, and we're still reaching people. I mean, that never changes. Our purpose is to reach, but we realize we're not going to reach everybody. But if I can't reach them, maybe we can at least impact them. And if I impact them now, maybe later on in their life, I can reach them or somebody else can reach them. And maybe they'll be reached later, but let's impact them now. And so last week we started with the concept of having vision. You've got to have vision to impact. But we got to keep going on because it's not just about vision. There's a spiritual foundation if we're going to impact the lives of people all around us. And so what we need to do is we need to have prayer. And so where we're going to come today is in Luke chapter 2. We were in Luke chapter 2 last week. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this week. And we talked about Simeon last week. We're going to talk about Anna today. And uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 36, and here's what it says. There was the prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and, and prayer. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So in the message today, here's what I want you to see. Pray that you will impact others to and for Jesus. In your life, pray that you will impact other people to Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. And so as I come to these three verses today, I want to share three things with you. And I want to begin by talking about a woman of prayer. In the New Testament, like no other place, you see in a culture 2,000 years ago, the elevation of women. It's hard for us to grasp in America. America is a, a, a Western civilization country. We are, we are a Western culture com- country. And Western culture depends largely upon Christianity, the Judeo-Christian worldview. It is a stone-cold fact. To deny it is to either be extremely ignorant or just unbelievable arrogant to think that Christianity didn't impact primarily more than anything else 
Western civilization. And in Western civilization, women are always elevated. We, we, we understand the equality of women. You know, you, you watch the Olympics, our women probably won more medals than our men. Our women just did a better job. And part of the reason they did a better job is because in America, we so elevate the role and position of women. You don't believe me, you just, just go to third world countries. Any country that's not been critically influenced by America does not value women the way you do. Other religions don't value women the way Christianity does, not Islam not Hinduism, not Buddhism. When they come to America, they have to, to some degree, or they'll be rejected by Americans. But you go to the heart and home of Islam, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Confucianism, animism, any of those religions, women aren't valued the way we value them. Something unique in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, you come to the Gospels. I mean, come to Luke's Gospel. Luke starts off in chapter 1, an angel comes to a priest, a Jewish priest, a man of faith, and says, in your old age, your wife's going to have a son. And, and the priest, Zechariah, doesn't believe him. And so he makes him mute. And then the wife, though, Elizabeth, does believe. The wife had more faith than the priest's husband. She's the hero of that story. You come, you know, to the mother of Jesus right after that, Mary. The angel says, you're, you're going to get pregnant. You know, you're 15 years old, 16 years old. He doesn't tell her, you know, hey, you know, your husband, we're going to explain it to Joseph, your husband, or your family. He just says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be pregnant. And she's thinking, great, I'm going to be 15, 16. My husband, my fiance is going to disown me. He's not going to want to marry me. He's going to think I'm an immoral woman. My family may disown me. My entire culture and society will look down upon me. And she says, okay, Lord, as you wish, it's what we'll do. I mean, just great. The Gospel of Luke starts out with two women of unbelievable faith. You know, you have Mary of Magdalene found in all the Gospels. I mean, she's made out sometimes to be a prostitute. There's no evidence she was ever a prostitute. She was just a woman of faith. So at the resurrection of Christ, you know, when the, the, when the Sunday came, women went out. They, like everyone else, thought Jesus was still dead. They went to anoint the body, and the women got to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. The first people to see an empty tomb were women. Mary Magdalene, one of them. And then they went and told the apostles... And the apostles came after the women, and then the first person to see Jesus alive again was Mary Magdalene. I mean, you know, back then, women could not be a witness or testify in a court of law. And like in the New Testament, the first people to give witness to Jesus were women. And then Paul, I mean, what Paul does is amazing. Paul gets blamed and gets criticized for being anti-woman. You're crazy. Paul's the one person after Jesus who elevated women more than anyone else was Paul. It's just that when he started all these churches, and he would say, hey, listen, there's no difference between a man or a woman. Y'all come to Christ, man. And he elevated the role of women. In that culture, in society, women didn't do things like teach men. Women didn't, they, they didn't, you know, they were submissive to their husbands completely. Women didn't have elevated roles unless you were very wealthy. The average common woman didn't. And in the church, they had all these freedoms, and they were just going to town, and it was crazy. And Paul had to say, whoa, 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 hang on. It's great. We want you to keep doing it. Just don't get so far ahead of everything that you cause a real problem for the church and culture. Just tone it down a little bit. You think about the women that Paul dealt with. When in Acts 16, he went to Europe for the first time and he shared the gospel. The first person who was a convert was a woman named Lydia. There are no men. He said, Lydia? Now, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay, just a little paraphrase. It's a South Texas paraphrase. Lydia, ain't no men who come to Jesus, so we're going to start this church in your house. And she said, all right, let's do it. And that's what they did. And then he had those close friends, you know, Priscilla and Aquila. But the, the, Priscilla's the woman. She's named first. And back then, you didn't put the woman first. Even in our culture, you know, it, it's, it's Dr. and Mrs. David Burroughs. My name comes before Debbie. Most of your addresses, the men comes first, right? Come on, they do just the way it is. Her name came first. Why? 
She was more prominent. That's why. And then there was Phoebe in, in, in Romans 16. He says, he describes Phoebe as a being a diakone, a deaconess. Now, we always translate that servant in the English New Testament because the word means to serve. The word for deacon is the same word for minister, is serve. The word minister, the word deacon, diakonea, to serve. There's a couple of technical times it's used to describe a person technically, and two of those times we use as deacon. The word deacon is used technically only twice. Well, it's actually used a third time. We don't do it that way. It's Phoebe. She is called... It has to be one of two things, the way it's written in the Greek text. She's either a deacon or she's a minister. Pick your poison, but she's one or the other. In fact, here's the cool thing. She is the only human being in the New Testament labeled as a deacon. No man is called deacon in the New Testament, just Phoebe. And she was a woman who kept identifying as a woman every step of the way. Sorry, that was cheap. I just do that anyway. <laughs> but I'm looking at the clock. I have extra time, so that's okay. And then we come to the Gospel of Luke. And there's this one woman who tends to go unnoticed. And her name is Anna. And she's only got three verses written about her. But, but, but here's what Luke tells us about Anna. He says that she was the daughter of a man named Famuel of the house of Asher, not tribe of Asher. Now, that has no significance other than it just gives historical credence. And she was married, probably the typical age, back then, 15, 16, and she was married seven years, and then her husband died, and she became a widow. Or as my late grandmother likes to say, she became a widow woman. And I used to say, Nanny, widow woman is redundant. By definition, a widow is a woman. And she'd say, hush, boy, and eat that fried chicken I made you. And I'd say, yes, ma'am, I'll do that. Because my grandmother was a really good Baptist. She could fry everything. She could fry air, and it tasted good. Yeah. <laughs> and so here she was. And it tells us at 84, when the story came, about she was in the temple every day, every day, every night. She was in the temple night and day, night and day. And I don't, some say maybe she lived there in a little room, or probably she just came all the time. Whenever the temple was open, she was there. And we see three things about this woman. We're going to see about her spiritual journey, her spiritual life, and the way that she received Jesus. And so what we see in her spiritual journey is it tells us this, that she was a prophetess, and that she was serving. She was a servant. It uses the word prophet, prophetess, the female form. And so understand, and Joe and Grow Wednesday and I was talking about the prophets. The word prophet does not mean to tell the future. We, we use it that way now. So by and large, guys like me, I don't use the word prophet much because it's been co-opted by certain groups and corrupted to almost always mean one who tells about the second coming of Jesus. So anytime you hear the word prophet, oh, this is going to talk about the second coming of Jesus. So I ignore that word mostly. But it means one who speaks to minds of God. It means the one who preaches. In the Old Testament, the Jews, div I mean, divide the Old Testament up into the law, the first five books, the writings, which were Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, maybe Job, and everything else was called the prophets, the former prophets, the latter prophets, because they spoke the mind of God. They talked about God. In the New Testament, the word prophet is used of a guy like me, a preacher. Now, when, when people ask me, when I go talk to a, a pastor search committee, or when I did, I don't anymore, just in case you were wondering, some of you are going rats, some of you are going like that, but... When I talk to them and they say, what are your spiritual gifts? I will use it in very modern language. I will say, well, I can communicate scripture and I lead. I lead. That's what I do. But if I used it in classic New Testament Pauline terminology, I would say I have the gift of prophecy and the gift of administration. That just don't fly well in a Baptist church. So I just say I can preach. So let me explain this to you. Anna preached. 
That's what she did. She proclaimed the word of God. Understand this. Let this sing here just for a second. Just think about this. Anna did in the New Testament what she could not do and cannot do in most Baptist churches. You got that? She did in the New Testament what she cannot do in most Baptist churches. She preached, and it says she was a servant of the Lord. The word servant there, uh, she served night and day in the temple. The word serve means not the, it's not the word for deacon or minister. It's a more technical term. We get our term liturgy from it, liturgy. She served in a very technical sense. It's, it's the idea of serving towards worship. So the serving she did was a worshipful serving. So here we see Anna in the temple every day, preaching the word of God and serving in a worship-oriented kind of way. Pretty much exactly what I'm doing, I don't know, right this very second. That was Anna. Now, we see her spiritual journey and we see her spiritual life. And when she was serving, this is how she served. It says that she was involved with fasting and praying. She fasted and she prayed. Now, to, to fast, it, it, we don't talk about fasting much, but fasting basically is to do without something physical and replace it with something spiritual. And what you did without was food, and you replaced it with prayer. So when people fasted, and when today when they fast, what you do is you don't eat a meal, and while you're not eating, instead of eating, you pray. That's what that, the idea of that is. And so she was there, and normally when it would be a time to eat, morning or afternoon or whenever, she would instead be praying, and she was praying all the time. And the word prayer is not just a general word for prayer. It's a very specific word that means to request or to plead or to ask. It's used oftentimes in terms of intercessory prayer. It's to ask on behalf of someone else normally for a very specific thing. Most likely, she was doing the same thing we saw Simeon last week. Simeon, man full of the Holy Spirit, was constantly praying for the consolation of Israel, or what we would call the, the Messiah. Her prayer seems to be, a word phrase we see a little bit later on, the redemption of Jerusalem. She, she mentions in a minute the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still God's people, you know, in the temple area, but God's people. The idea of redeem is to buy back or to pay back. It's to, to bring back. It's used of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He paid that price for us. That's what he did. So there's redemption. And by using this phrase here, Luke is foreshadowing the coming of the cross because at the cross is where Jesus died to redeem us. So she was praying. She was fasting and prayed, and then we see her response to the Savior, to Jesus. It says in verse 38, at that time, um, at what time? Well, at the time that Simeon recognized that Jesus was there, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in, we saw last week, and Simeon saw that. Now, you know, Anna and Simeon are going to know each other. They're both in the temple area every day. Temple's a big place, but they're going to know each other. You're going to, you know, at, at that many years, looking at Anna, 84, she's been doing this probably 60 years. At some point, she's going to know everybody, you know, and, and so they know each other, and so she sees what's going on, and the New Living Translation says when Simeon had the child, and so she went over at that time, and two things happened. First, she begins to thank God. She's, the word thank means to pray. She's praising God. She sees Jesus, understands who he is. Simeon declares that she understands it. Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, and a prophetess who understands and speaks the minds of God, and she begins praising. So here's the thing. Praising God is the natural response when you encounter Jesus as Savior. Jesus moves us to praise. Jesus moves us to honor and worship God. You're here today worshiping. 
You have come to praise God. You have come to praise God in the name of, on an account of, Jesus Christ. We are here because of Jesus. Jesus moves to praise. It's exactly what he did in the life of Anna, to honor God. And then after praising, she begins, it says, to speak of him. New Living Translation, NIV, says the child. She begins to speak of Jesus to those in the area looking for the, the redemption of it, Jerusalem. In other words, to anyone else in the temple that was like her and Simeon, there probably weren't many actually looking for the coming of Christ, or it could mean for all of the Jews who theoretically were looking for Jesus. Basically, what it says is she began the process of telling them this is the Messiah. She began to tell them about Jesus. So here's the thing. When you encounter Jesus, confess and profess him as Savior. When you encounter Jesus, the first thing you do in your life is you need to confess he's your Savior. You need to trust your life to him. And secondly, you need to begin to profess to others or proclaim that he is Savior. You confess and you profess that Jesus is the Savior. That's what we do. So when you encounter Jesus, two things happen in your life. Anna did both. You honor God and you help get people to Jesus once you've come. We say this all the time in our church. Why are we here? To honor God. To get people to Jesus. Our our whole desire to reach is to reach people for Jesus, for the glory and honor of God. That's because that is the foundational thing of expression in the New Testament. What did Hannah do? Well, it's real simple. She praised God, and she pre- pre- preached Jesus. She professed him in her own, confessed him and professed him. And she was able to do that. Why? Because of her prayer life. Her prayer life, here's the thing. Her prayer life put her in a position to recognize and proclaim Jesus as Savior. It was a prayer life. Other people were there. There were a ton of Pharisees there. Oh, Sadducees all over the place. Man, the temple's crawling with Sadducees. I mean, there were priests there. None of them did this. Why? They weren't praying the way she was praying. They weren't where she was, man. That's not who their life was. She was praying and looking for the coming of the Messiah. And it put her in that place. We don't know what impact Anna made in anyone's life at that time. But we know she impacted one life. That was Luke. And Luke put her story in the story of Jesus. Because she's a woman of prayer. Which brings us then to the power of prayer. Prayer has power. We believe that. That's why we pray. I pray because I believe prayer has power. But too often, what we want to do is we want to get God to do things our way. And that's not what prayer is. Too much prayer is to try to to kind of leverage God. You know, I've done that before. I remember, and I've shared this before, in a really tough time in my life, I said, God, you owe me. Now it's time for you to pay up. <laughs> that, wasn't a, that, that didn't work well. But I will say this, after that prayer, God changed me. After I prayed that prayer, and God broke me, and he broke me that day. He changed me. Because here's the thing, the power of prayer does not lie in its ability to change, convince, or convict God. But it's an ability to change, convince, and convict us. That's what it does. It doesn't change God. We're not going to change God. We're not going to convince God or convict him. It's just us. You think Anna and Simeon were praying to convince God he needed to send a Messiah? The only reason they knew a Messiah was God had already spoke through the prophets, the mind. And the one time or a couple of times they did tell the future, hey, a Messiah's coming. They believed in a Messiah because that was the word of God from the, from the scriptures. And so they weren't convincing God. They were saying, God, we're ready. When I pray for people who are sick, 
I want God to heal them. And I always pray for their healing. But I say, God, if you don't, here's the two things that I hope happen. One, I hope you will help the people. That person, if they don't get healed and they live through it, or the people in their life to understand. And second, send some of us to go be a part of their life. Help us go to them. Change us. That's the power of prayer. The other day, <laughs> I, I was... The other day, I was a little grumpy the other day. I told my wife I was grumpy. She said, you're always grumpy. I said, I'm grumpier than normal. <laughs> I was really grumpy. You'd be grumpy, too, if you work with the people I work with. They'll make you grumpy sometimes. So I was grumpy. So, you know, I knew I needed to pray. And so I prayed and said, God, I'm grumpy. I didn't use the word grumpy because it was just me and God. So I used another word I won't use now because it was just me and God, and I can do that with God. So I used that term. And I didn't say, God, you need to. You need to accept who I am. This is how you made me. This is who I am, God. So just, you know, you and everybody else got to deal with it. I didn't say, God, change all those people and the situations that are the reason I'm grumpy because it's their fault. You got to change them. I said, God, I'm grumpy because of me. So you need to change me. And when I was through praying, I wasn't grumpy or as grumpy as I was before. Because prayer has this ability when we go to God to change us. Here's what prayer does. Prayer puts us where God can use us. That's what it does. That's what it did for Anna. Anna, it put God where God could use Anna, physically and spiritually. I mean, literally, she was where God could use her. She was in the temple when Jesus showed up. Literally, she was there. I mean, it's literal, literal. It's not figurative, literal. Don't you hate it when people use the word literally and it's figurative? And that literally drives me nuts when people do that. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. She was in the temple, and the Savior shows up physically, spiritually, right where she was supposed to be. Prayer puts us where we're supposed to be, puts us where God can use us. And the thing about prayer is that prayer shows our commitment to God in a very unique way. You see, a lot of what we do as Christians is public. It needs to be. We talk about we want you to worship an hour and serve an hour. We got to worship an hour, serve an hour, sign up out there. So that's public. We want you to get involved in community through connect groups. We have connect night coming up. If you know what that is, I think the announcements will explain it, and there's other ways to explain it. We want you involved in community. Those are public. But prayer, by and large, is private. I mean, sometimes it's, there's public prayer. And, and Anna, in the temple, there were some public as aspects of it because it was a part of worship. But the idea was she was always praying, which means in her private life, she just prayed. Prayer, just it, it's just a unique aspect to our faith because it's just us and God. It's just us and God. And there can be a realness when you pray. You can, do you realize you can say to God what you can't say to anyone else? You can say to God, because God already knows, so you can just Tell it like it is. And it's such a unique thing about our life, our prayers and our Bible study, because it just lets us be right where God can use us. Especially when we're praying to honor God and help people come to Jesus. So we see this woman of prayer. She utilized the power of prayer, not to change God, but so that she could be right where she needed to be to impact other people, which is what she did. Which brings me to the third thing I want to share with you today, and that's praying for impact. 
So impact is just where we are in the life of our church. We, we know we want to reach people for Jesus. That never changes. We're not going to reach everybody. I know that. But maybe if I don't reach them and I look at things, maybe I can impact their life. And if I impact their life, maybe later on I can reach them or someone else will reach them. So at least what I can do is impact the lives of people around me. And six years ago, when we started this journey when I came pastor to reach more people, which involved relocating out here, and we knew we were locating in stages and that our first building wouldn't be big enough. But when we, when we came out here, I had no idea that our church would do all that it's done. I had no idea our church would look this way. Most of you weren't a part of our church back then. I have no idea what our church will look like six years from now. I don't. But I know this, if we'll impact people's lives, it'll look a whole lot different than it does right now because there'll be a whole lot more people here as a part of a faith community that honors God. So we want to impact. So here's the thing we should pray for. And I'm going to share three things that I think you should pray for and impact. The first is this, pray. You will take advantage of the opportunity God gives you to impact others. You realize you have opportunities, multiple opportunities, every week of your life to impact the lives of other people. When I think about all the people that will come to our church this month, and that every week, the untold opportunities they will have, you realize we're going to have thousands upon thousands of opportunities in this month alone to impact the lives of other people. And the sad thing is we won't take advantage of very many of those opportunities. And part of the reason we don't take advantage of those opportunities, and part of the reason I fail, and as pastor, trust me, I fail to take advantage of all the opportunities I have, is because we don't pray enough that God will move us to take advantage of them. We don't recognize they're there. And a lot of times when we recognize they're there, we just sort of slide on by. Why don't you take a little time to pray that you will recognize those opportunities that God gives you. And you and I together can take advantage of those opportunities. Secondly, pray that you will use all God has provided you spiritually, intellectually, and physically to honor him and impact others. You want to honor God and reach Jesus, people for Jesus, impact them. God has given all of us intellectual, spiritual, and physical capabilities. Some of you have amazing spiritual abilities and gifts that I couldn't begin to have. I'm pretty limited. I'm really a one-trick pony. There's not much I can do. Some of you have amazing abilities. Some of you intellectually have the capacity to deal with things and contemplate things. And even if your intellectual ability is simple, that's okay. You still can connect with people. And some of you have the physical resources, whether it be talent or time or treasures, home or finances. Some of you have them that you can impact people's lives for the glory and honor of God. So what I want to do in my life is take everything God has given me and use it to impact others. I don't have time to remind us of the parable, the story of Jesus giving the five talents to one guy, two to another, and one to another. It's somewhere in the Gospels. And the guy had five talents, invested, got five more. Two, invested, got two more. The one had one talent, hid it because they knew the master was harsh and just gave it back. And of course... 
the person who took the five and the two and used it were praised. The person who took the one was you know, condemned for failing to take the one. This is the thing. I'm not concerned about being a one-person talent that hides and buries their talent and never uses it. I'm concerned that I'm the five-talent person, and all I ever do is use it for two more talents. My concern is I never use all that God gave me for his glory and to reach people. The third thing you pray for us is pray that FBC will honor God and reach people for Jesus through our impact. Pray that we will, in everything we do, honor God and reach people for Jesus through impact. This is why we have impact now. We're going to expand our facilities. We're going to expand our reach. We're going to expand our impact to honor God and to reach other people. Think about the life of Anna, her spiritual journey, a prophetess, servant, her spiritual life, fasting and praying, in a response to Jesus to pray and honor God and to proclaim Christ. Think of the impact she has had. What impact have you had in your life? Where's the impact of you using what God has provided you. Now, you're never going to make an impact until first you come to Christ. So if you've never come to Christ, the thing we invite you to do today is give your life to Jesus. And I haven't preached that type of message, but we always want to give you the opportunity to trust Christ. Right now, you can trust him to be your Savior. In just a moment, we'll be standing here, and maybe you want to come and say, I want to give my life to Christ. Some of you, what you need to do is realize that you may not reach all the people you want to reach, but can you impact them? Maybe today, make the commitment. Say, God, I'm making this commitment to you. Whatever else happens, I'm going to take everything you've given me, and I'm going to impact the lives of people. And some of you, you may say, God, all I can really do right now in my life is pray. So if you will at least make the commitment to pray, all of us can pray. All of us, like Anna, can pray. Whatever it is that God wants you to do, we want you to commit yourself to him so that you can leave this place today impacting other people. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you give us, and we want to give it back to you. And, God, whether it be through the opportunity we have now to trust Christ as Savior, whether it's the opportunity to come and join our church, which people can do, whether it's the opportunity, Father, to come and pray for others or just to submit ourselves completely, we want to commit ourselves to you to make an impact, however we make that impact. We want to be people who in our life bring honor to God and get people to Jesus to impact their lives. So, Father, let us make this commitment individually and collectively that we will leave this place committed to impact. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand? We'll here, be here to greet you. And you come.